This is all what we teach. That's got to be him. That must be him, yeah. Hello? Hey, Rob. Hey, hey, my man. Hey, can you hear me okay? Oh, uh, yeah, I hear you perfect. Great. Um, are you all set up with Vanessa on that end? Yeah, I'm, and I got 50% on my phone, so I think I'm good. <laughs> okay. Well, we might be here a while, so hopefully 50% will, will be enough to get us through. Okay. Um, I'm also here with uh, another producer on the show, Austin. How you doing there, Rob? Hey, hey, how you doing, my man? Um, I'm good, man. Yeah, thanks for talking with us. It's all good, man. Anything, you know, to, to help the kids, you know, that's what, what, my, what I do now. Yeah, and we're definitely going to ask you about that. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let's just get right into it. Can you tell me your name, your age, and what your profession is? Yeah, Rob Boyd, I'm 54 years old. I was a gangbanger and a drug dealer in Detroit. One, two, three, now! Today on the show, Rob Boyd. Welcome to Crime Town. What part of Detroit were you born in? Uh, in the Black Bottoms, on the east side. It used to be a record store in our neighborhood, and uh, me and mother used to walk up there all the time because she loved getting them 45s and them LPs back in the day. Wasn't no tapes and CDs and all that. So she would go up there and get music, and we'd walk back, and, you know, we got the ISC brothers playing in the house, the Commodores, and Temptations, Smokey Robinson. You know, we got we had all that. I used to play baseball. That was one of my favorite sports, baseball. I used to always tell my mother I was going to be a professional baseball player and get us out the hood, or I was going to be a great boxer and get out the hood. So that was my two dreams, boxing and baseball. It's now time for God Speaks to the Prophet and the Prophet Speaks to the People Prayer Band Spiritual Church with your spiritual leader and founder, the Reverend Dr. Robert D. Bull internationally known and revered as Prophet Boy. My father um, is Robert D. Boy Sr., and he's the author of 66 books, and he was a preacher. His congregation called him the Prophet. Uh, he had a big congregation, you know, 5,000 members at his church. It's prayer time around the world. Yeah. Whoever you are or wherever you are, stop whatever you're doing. Woman, man, boy, or girl. You need a touch from God. Shall we pray? Mother met him when she was 17 years old at church. And uh, she married him in 1962. And then I was born in 63. And then uh, he messing around on mother. And then mother ended up divorcing him in 67. He's uh, flamboyant with the mink coats and the jewelry and all of that. Every day, you know, you're seeing him on TV, and uh, me and mother, we down in the hood. Keep me, oh Lord, in good health, and give me good health and strength to overcome conditions that try to block my path. Bless my From a very young age, I seen that my mother working two and three jobs. It was like 
How can this man be up here doing all that and we down here starving? Look on those who persecute us, for they know not what they do. God indirects my mind. I was so happy and delighted when he uh, told me to meet him down at Tiger Stadium. He called the house that day, you know what I mean, and I answered the phone. He just said, hey, son, I'm just calling to let you know uh, it's a baseball game going on. Meet me downtown, and, uh, you know, we're going to go to the game, you know. And that, that, you know, that makes any little kid happy, you feel me? If uh, you finna go to a game or whatever with your, with your dad, you know. I'm standing at the gate, and it started getting dark. The people who stands at the gate, they say, little fella, who you waiting on? I said, I'm waiting on my dad. He never showed up, man. So the guy did let me watch the game, but after that, I lost total interest in uh, baseball from that point on. All his promises was always empty, you know? I was very angry at him, period, because my stepfather was more like my father than my own father. My stepfather was a, a great guy. One particular Christmas, it was cold blizzard in Detroit, you know? And my mother wanted that Christmas tree so bad, me and him walked to get mother that Christmas tree, and it was a blizzard out there, you know? That was a great time because I'm throwing snowballs and, you know, just having a good moment. And we did something that my mother wanted, you know, she wanted that Christmas tree. Oh, she was happy, brother. She was happy. And then she had the hot chocolate ready and everybody just laughing, having a good time because that was holiday time, you know. And we always had the presents under the tree and uh, him and my mother always made sure the family was good, you know. But. You know, it only take one thing to change your life. And by the time I was nine, everything else went downhill, bro, after my stepfather got murdered. I was waiting for him to come home uh, that night, you know, because we used to always sit in the window and uh, wait for him because he always had something for us, whether it was cookies, whether it was candy whatever, you know, he's always bringing something home. So this particular night, after he got home and gave us uh, our cookies and stuff, you know, we went back in the back. My mother and them had, uh, had some words, but my stepfather, you know, was never uh, no guy to touch mom or nothing like that, because everybody have a, a few words. My auntie, which is my mother's sister, you know, she heard them talking a little loud, you know what I'm saying? And uh, she called my grandfather, which my grandparents stayed upstairs. It was a two-family flat, and uh, we was downstairs. So my grandfather came downstairs. My grandfather, man, was a trip, bro, you know what I mean? It's like uh, he was very old possessive, you know, of uh, his daughters. My grandfather was real good with a switchblade, and he used to always carry a switchblade in his pocket. Remind you now, my father had uh, just worked 12 hours, you know, and he was tired, 
and uh, he was sitting on the side of my mother's bed and his bed and I heard the commotion when my grandfather came downstairs telling him to leave and I came from out the room and I started looking when he told my father to leave my father like this my crib you know what I mean uh, I'm not going anywhere and um, when he closed his eyes just a taste man and next thing you know I see my grandfather going right at him you know and stabbed him right in his chest and blood starts shooting everywhere So I'm standing there watching everything, you know, everything. I just froze, bro. I mean, I just froze, man. I mean, I was numb. It's, I mean, couldn't yell, couldn't scream, none of that, you know what I mean? At the time, only nine years old, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, man, you know, I hope everybody, you know, chill out for we can go back to bed. But it wasn't no go back to bed. It was a murder scene. He just started bleeding profusely, and my mother started yelling, you know, get some towels, get some towels, you know. So, oh, she just said, why, why, you know? It's just what mother just said, why, you know what I'm saying? Because nobody hadn't did nothing uh, to the point where someone should have been dead, you know? I hated my grandfather because uh, he took something away from me and my mother, and we didn't have no father, you know? And he took what father we had away from us. We moved over to Van Dyke and Harper area on a street called Strong. I just knew that it wasn't like the neighborhood I just came from, you know? And I knew it was like all these guys hanging around all the time, smoking cigarettes and, you know, walking with the big boom box and, you know, stuff like that, man, and shooting dice, you know, uh, right next, you know, right next door to mother's house. And it was all of that. That's the, where I got started getting in trouble at. That was a gang-infested neighborhood. You remember them long maxi coats that people used to wear back in the old days? You know, well, my mother had worked hard to get me that coat, man, you know? It was black and uh, it was long, you know, and I was proud of that coat. Because my mother got it, you know? Whenever mother says she was going to get me something, you can best believe it's coming. They came inside the school. They was from the chain gang, two of them. You know, one had a heater. Well, what, what did they say to you when they, when they approached? Oh, man, I mean, you know, they just, like, give up the coat, you know what I mean? And uh, they was heated up. Did he point it at you? Oh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And, you know, I'm not going to die with no coat, you feel me? I ran back into uh, the neighborhood to the guys who hung out in front of my mother's home. They said, yeah, we'll take you to get your little coat, little homie. They found him that same day. When they called him, man, you know, they was like, yeah, we, get your coat, little homie, get your coat, you know what I mean? And then my man, you know, I ain't gonna say his name, but yeah, my man, he uh, went in his side and he grabbed the pistol. He said, yeah, man, he said, go ahead and, and, and beat his head in, man. Then they gave me a pistol to pistol whip the guy. And so, hey, you know, I was already an angry kid on the loose, man. So 
that wasn't nothing for me to do. So I did that with honor, you know? Can you just tell me how how it felt? I oh, mean... man, it, it felt great, my brother. It, it, it felt, you know, the same thing I wanted to do to my grandfather, you know? And as I was whooping on his head, I was thinking about what my grandfather had did to my stepfather. I was 10 years old. They embraced me, you know what I'm saying? And they say, you're part of us now, little homie, you know? So that was uh, one of the greatest moments of my life, you know what I mean? That I had big homies that was going to not only watch out for me, but, you know, now I'm able to be a part of something. Yeah, I've been selling drugs since I was 10, but I didn't get heavy, heavy farther than in the kilos and all of that, you know what I'm saying, until I got like 16, 17 years old. My cousin, uh, his name is Durrell, he had told me, uh, do you want to get some money? And I'm like, hell yeah, what's up, you know? And I became uh, my cousin's bodyguard. We started moving and uh, we put a crew together called the 430 Crew. Heron and Pills, uh, you remember uh, Delilah Fours and Emprams and Somas, you know, Black Beauties, all of that, man. We we used to sell all of that, you know, mescaline. And it was a pill called Debs, you know. Uh, we used to sell them as a diet pill, but dope fiends used to shoot it, you know. We just started doing all kind of stuff, man, to make money, you know. Can you tell me what that very first big deal was like? Oh, man, it, it, it felt so good, man. It was like a rush, man, where you know uh, for a fact you can grab that one and you can make 25 grand right off the top. You know what I'm saying? That's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. I felt the same way you just said. And we went shopping, you know, and I bought me a car, a Z28. I used to love those. You remember the Z28 back in the days with the T-tops? Oh, man, that was my cars back then, bro. And mine was uh, powder blue, you know, with the white leather interior. What would you do with all that money other than buying cars? Oh, well, you know, I used to watch out for my people, you know what I mean, my family, you know, and um, buy stuff for my homeboys, you know. Just like you Santa Claus giving everybody their toys, you know. And then, like, for a holiday season, you know, we used to buy kids toys and turkeys and backpacks for school and school clothes. And, and that's how it was in the projects, man. I mean, you know, we watched out for people, man. When you starting to get that big money and you like, wow, you know, this ain't going to never end. We used to go out to the clubs. So, you know, it was, it was some great times, but it was some terrible times, you know. It was me and my cousin, Daryl, and our bodyguard, Space. That was his nickname. You know how they have that after-hour nightclub on the upstairs floor? We went up there, it was like upstairs. 
My cousin was at the bar, and that's when he would start talking to this lady who was sitting at the bar. She wasn't nobody's uh, girl, you know? And, and the guy who was taking pictures in the place, you know, he started uh, talking stuff, you know? He was acting like that girl was his woman. <laughs> so I was like, man, I'm not even thinking about this guy. I told the dude, you know, I said, man, that ain't even your woman. You know, I told my cousin, let's go, you know? And next thing you know, I got stabbed in my back with a hook knife. Have you ever seen one of them hook knives uh, where when the blade open up, it, it hooks around? You ever seen one of them? So when you hit somebody, it locks open and, and curves in, you know what I mean? And uh, when he pulled it out, man, I mean, it was like, wow, you know? So our bodyguards stopped shooting the whole place up. And I had uh, stopped breathing, man. And they had, you know, that thing they put on your chest, the boom, boom thing? And uh, yeah, that, that brought me back to the game. And so what did you think when you woke up in the hospital? Like, what, what went through your mind? Uh, man, I was uh, happy to be here, brother, you know what I mean? And that I wasn't dead, you know? Because that's how bad um, I was bleeding and um, it was hurting terribly, you know? I mean, was that a, was that a turning point for you? Uh, it was past a turning point. Uh, I didn't go to them kind of places no more. And uh, by that time, me and my cousin was falling out. He wanted to hang out all night long sometime, sleep all day, and everybody else out on the block, you know, hustling. And he's sleeping all day, you know. So people used to tell me, man, your cousin, you know, he messing with that blow, man, and this and that. And I'd be like, man, he ain't messing with that. In the projects, in the Parkside projects where, where we was at, uh, we had several spots, you know, where we would keep money and drugs, and then we had a spot uh, where people would go and get high, you know, and pay to, you know, do their drugs in, in that one spot. And I happened to be going over there uh, one night and went upstairs, and uh, he was in there with this broad, and uh, he was using it. And that just, that just destroyed me, you know? I went off on him, man, you know what I mean? And uh, I told him, we, we can't do business like this, man, because you you, you messing up the, the shit. My cousin was a hell of a guy, man. He was a good guy, had a good heart, you know what I mean? Uh, he wasn't violent like me, but uh, he got caught up using. So, so what actually wound up happening with Daryl? Uh, he ended up dying ODing. ODing on heroin? Heroin, yeah. And uh, it, it, it hurt me, you know what I mean? Because that was my first cousin, and that was my homeboy at the same time, you know? Then I took over the organization in uh, Parkside Projects. I put everything back in the right perspective and started mingling with other homeboys. I wanted to expand. So I ended up expanding with my other homeboys. When crack arrived, bro, 
people will sell their soul for that. You feel me? And I didn't understand it, man. They was like, man, we got to switch over to that. Because even though uh, you had the pure cocaine, people would start asking for crack. You see what I'm saying? So we just started cooking up the whole kilo and breaking it down and uh, just selling crack, you know? Uh, it was uh, an instant high and it was cheap, man. You know what I mean? Uh, you can start getting rocks for like $10. But then, you know, we broke the game down where you can get a big rock for five dollars you feel me so you you had people man that would sit in your spot all night long wouldn't move until all the money gone you know it was like you, you had uh people in a trance and i i couldn't even fathom that i should be looking like wow man this shit is serious dog these people ain't even trying to go home Where were the cops in all this? Oh, man. Uh, well, we was at in the projects. Uh, police didn't even come down through that, you know? So we had a, we had a free run. And uh, it was a, a lot of uh, police at that time in Detroit, man, that was uh, on drugs themselves. Because crack had hit, and when it hit, you know, it was like, a bomb, you know what I'm saying? Uh, people didn't know what they was getting into and what they start tampering with. And uh, you had everybody, man, from uh, lawyers to doctors to judges. You had everybody on crack, man. You know, Detroit became a, a zombie city, man. Yeah, I mean, did you ever, did you ever feel guilty? No, it was all about the dollar sign, you know. You, you don't have time for guilt. You don't have time for feelings. You dig what I'm saying? It's strict business, you know. And the money changed everybody once the big money came. And all the homeboys turned on each other. Yeah, homeboys start killing each other and robbing each other. Man, just shit, it just got out of control, man. The homies you had grew up with from mud pie, now they dope fiends, you know what I'm saying? And that life had became ugly, very ugly, you know? I seen a lot of my other homeboys robbing, taking, you know, and I'm like, wow, you know, we all grew up together. Now everybody's taking and robbing and some using, and I never forget it. Ma, I told my mom, you know, I said, you know, I said, I'm gonna have to leave here, you know, because I really want to get my life together. I said, because the way things is happening, I could end up dead too, you know? 1989, in December, I left Detroit to never come back, you know? I bought a one-way ticket on the Greyhound and drove on the Greyhound and never forget it riding through the night and uh, finally arriving. Oh man, when I arrived in Cincinnati, my brother, I never forget it. And uh, I felt a breath of fresh air, my brother, you know. For the first time, 
in years I've felt a breath of fresh air that now I'm in a city where nobody knows me but one person. Nobody know my background. I changed my whole format. I got me a 1991 626 Mazda, took off all my jewelry, and became a regular guy in the neighborhood. I was working at a place, McDonald's, and I was working at Arby's, and I worked at a Skyline Chili, trying to do right. I mean, how did it feel to go from, you know, driving luxury cars, slinging drugs, to washing dishes in a fast food joint? It felt good, my brother. For the first time in my life, it felt good to be away from the life that I had accumulated for myself. I felt great, man. And then um, I started running low on money. So um, I started moving forward again real lightly, you know. I wasn't uh, messing with a lot of bricks, you know what I'm saying? I would get one and rock like that. The guy who I've been dealing with, I was meeting him at Kroger's parking lot, and I usually just go inside and... Uh, leave it on the seat and he throw the money on the seat. But this particular time, I come back out and I'm, I'm, I'm like, wow, something don't feel right, you know? And it wasn't. Next thing you know, you know, they surrounded the car. And so what, so how did you feel when the cops suddenly surrounded you? Oh man, my heart sunk, bro. <laughs> I'm like, not this shit again, you know? I just felt terrible, man, to be honest with you, because I was like, I just told my mother I'm trying to straighten up, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it was a one to 10 year sentence, but I only did one year and paroled out the next year in 94. Really, to be honest with you, man, it was like a, a little mini vacation. You know, they used to call me the writing man because I used to do a lot of writing, a lot of reading, and a lot of educating myself. I was getting older too, man, you know what I'm saying? So uh, I was always a reader, and I was always a person that was always willing to learn something that will help me down the stretch. So uh, it, it helped me a lot. You know, I, I didn't want to be in prison all my life and that wasn't my thing, you know? So I focused on, I need to get out of here and I need to do something right. You know, I don't know how my life is going to go, but I need to do something right. The day I was finna get released, my mother had sent me a care package, you know, because I've been waiting for her to send me uh, my underwear and all of that, you know. And uh, the day I was getting released, they was like, Robert Boyd, you got a package? I was like, I don't even care about that package. I said, you can keep that package. I'm steady getting up on the bus, headed to Cincinnati, to the halfway house, you know what I'm saying? I didn't even think about that, that care package. I got underwear when I got down to the halfway house. 
Young Chicago. In my life, wanna make a change, but they just can't cope. Put them lyrics down, and now I'm selling legal dope. On the streets, trying to make that green, but it wasn't easy. Shit I was doing wasn't two steps up from being sleazy. I got involved with my music again when I got out, you know. Uh, I've always had my own studio, and I've always uh, went and recorded whenever I felt like it. And uh, that's what I did in my spare time to keep my mind motivated when, you know, you go through certain things and uh, you want to just lean back. So I would go to my studio and record and things like that. I have a bunch of songs recorded, and uh, I've done put out uh, several albums. I had just recorded a song called Shake It Baby and my homeboy that used to work with me in the studio all the time, LD, he was like, man, you need to get on this thing called MySpace and you need to uh, put your music up there for people can hear your music. I said, man, dude, I ain't trying to be in no MySpace. What is that? You know, <laughs> you know? he was like, that's on the internet. I said, man, I ain't trying to be on nobody's internet, bro. So he convinced me to be on there and we put the song out there on MySpace and um, I seen all these people on that. I was like amazed because that, that was my first time ever on an internet thing. And, and I was like, these people, you can talk to these people too? He's like, yeah, you can send them messages and this and that. And I'm like, wow, that's deep. So I seen uh, so many people on there, but I seen this one picture. And I'm like, damn, I said, she's fine, you know what I mean? So I sent the song to her. And she sent a message back a little while later, and she was like, that's a real nice song, you know? And shit, from that day, man, uh, we started communicating, and then I told her about the book I was working on, and she said, send it to me. So from that point, man, uh, I used to be in Cincinnati. We used to talk on the phone all night long, working on the book. She would email me stuff, and she'd say, check this out. And I would fall asleep. I would wake up. She'll still be on the telephone, bro. You know what I mean? I was like, wow. I said, I got something here. I had never seen her in person. So that following month, May 2009, I sent for her to come to Cincinnati. And that was my first time ever laying eyes on her, man. And from that point, we started the Streets on Love You Back movement together, man. And then in August of 2009, that's when my book was released, The Streets on Love You Back. And then in December 4th of 2009, that's when I married her in Las Vegas. From there, man, we've been moving forward uh, with prison reform. Um, we work with the senators here in uh, the state of Arizona. Uh, we work with the judges. Uh, we work with the prosecutors. And um, we're just doing a lot of great work, man. My program is in all the prisons here in the state of Arizona. We educate against gangs, drugs, violence, and abuse. And uh, we teach uh, anger management. Uh, we teach uh, people how to move forward and how to talk about your problems and get it out on the table. And uh, we just uh, conversate. Somebody called me, you know, that knew my father, and uh, they were saying that he was dying, you know, and he wanted to, to see me. So I went to see him. 
And what was he actually sick with? Uh, he had diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, and he had several strokes. One of his legs was cut off, you know. So yeah, he, he had a lot going on. But when I went to see him, I had a chance to really tell that man how I felt. I told him I felt betrayed, and I told him, you know, all the stuff that you had uh, promised me. You never did none of the promises you kept, and, you know, I guess involved with game-banging and drug-dealing and in trouble, and uh, you never was there, you know? He crying and talking about, you know, if I had to do it all over again, and he just said, Junior, I need to tell you something, and I'm looking like... I wonder what he talking about now in my mind. And he was like, you got brothers and sisters that you don't know about. And he told me to go look at this book, one of the books he wrote. And I looked inside of it, everybody's name right there, including mine, you know? Lord and behold, yeah, you know, I had brothers and sisters. I got a brother doing 100 years. Uh, I got another brother doing 30 to 50. I got another brother doing 10 years right up there in New York. And I got a brother named Sidney who got murdered after 18 years in prison. And then I got a brother named Robbie who did 17 years. He come home in 2014. God don't appreciate when you play with his name. And when he gives you uh, the opportunity to, to serve him and be that so-called prophet or that reverend, you got to really live that, you know. And when my father died, I mean, he could have had a, a hell of a legacy, but that didn't happen because he was all about himself. I was there when he took his last breath. I'd already told him what I wanted to tell him, so I didn't even share one tear, you know what I'm saying? never understood where this game would lead us you know we just with some young kids out there getting crazy money but we never understood this game would lead to all what it led to and that's taking each other's lives I tell these young kids nowadays do something right in your life and always remember the streets don't love you back what's up what's up this RB checking in but the streets don't love you back. The movement is on, baby. Letting you know me and LD. Talking about that thug slash drug life. Let me tell you a little lesson, players. In these streets, baby, they'll never love you back. Trust that. Crimetown is Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier. This season is made in partnership with Gimlet Media and Spotify. This special bonus episode was produced by Austin Mitchell, John White, Rob Zipko, Soraya Shockley, and Samantha Lee. 
The senior producer is me, Drew Nellis. This episode was mixed, sound designed, and scored by Kenny Kusiak. Original music this season composed by Homer Steinweiss. We recorded some original music at Rust Belt Studios in Detroit in partnership with Detroit Sound Conservancy. Additional music by John Kusiak, Kenny Kusiak, Beanart, Detroit Soul Ambassador Melvin Davis, and Rob Boyd. Additional mixing by Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Politicians in My Eyes by Death. Our credit track this week is The Streets Don't Love You Back by Rob Boyd and LD. Show art and design by James Cabrera and Elise Harvin. Thanks to Vanessa Barchfield for the tape sync, and special thanks to Rob and Lucinda Boyd. You can learn more about Rob's story in his book, The Streets Don't Love You Back. For more info on Rob's book, his music, and the work he does now, visit thestreetsdontloveyouback.ning.com. Love. One. Much love to Lucinda, my manager, and my man LD. Let's do it. 100. Out.